Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of the Publisher Lab. I am Tyler Bishop and finally joined alongside me today as many of you have probably come to expect in outright demand is Shelby Kang. Shelby, welcome back. Thanks. Yeah, and we've finally gotten back on track here a little bit. We've had um, either you or I, one of us was substituting in and out uh, different members of the team over the last few weeks, just kind of getting up to date on things. So it'll actually be nice to kind of explore some of the topics in the news because I think uh, many of them have overlaps with different topics that we've approached over the last month or so. And I'm, I'm interested to hear your, your takes on some of these things as well, if you have any takes, that is. All right. Well, um, our first topic is about contextual ads and how publishers are eyeing them as a potential for ad revenue growth. Um, so this article is from DigiDay, but as the pendulum kind of swings away from data-heavy and third-party-based audience targeting, publishers are using contextual data tools in smarter ways and gaining more control over their contextual ad revenues. So contextual ad targeting, if anybody doesn't know it, um, it's where ads are served to people based on the environment that they're reading. Um, so based on the content that they're reading, basically. Um, and it's definitely become more nuanced since there's been a lot of different brand safety debates and different tech tools that are kind of coming out. And people are kind of getting more specific on how to classify a page beyond just keywords. So the New York Times has built five proprietary contextual ad products since 2018, and other publishers are pairing together contextual data with existing first-party data. So things like email addresses or creating lookalike audience segments for unknown audiences. Um, so publishers have always, you know, created contextual private marketplace deals, but Browsers and regulators cracking down on cross-site tracking has accelerated the urgency to generate demand from contextually relevant buyers in all environments. So the common complaint about contextual ad revenue is that it won't really replace the revenue generated by audience-based targeting on the open marketplace. Um, contextual targeting definitely has its limits. Um, it, won't, it won't work for last-click attribution models, but some publishers think the scale of potential could move contextual a lot faster. Um, so as demand from mar marketers grow, publishers will start to take more control of their contextual ad revenue stream. But I mean, this kind of leaves the question of where does that leave small or mid-sized publishers that don't have the bandwidth or the resources to build their own tools like the New York Times? Yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, perspective. What's old is new, again, as we often talk about in publishing. Um, you know, I, I do think that there's a lot of interest right now, particularly with uh, a lot of the sort of walling of the gardens between all the major uh, platforms right now, Apple being one in particular. Um, but I think it begs the question of what is the future of uh, ad targeting and even personalized ad targeting. You know, contextual targeting is like this old tool that actually, um, for for what it is, contextual targeting is actually very effective. The problem is, is that it's not a universal application, meaning um, if I am targeting, uh, I wish I had a great example geared up here. If I'm targeting uh, the word, um, let's see, vacuum, let's say, right? 
um, because maybe I sell vacuums and I want to target pages that have the word vacuum on it. It makes a lot of sense until we get into talking about the vacuum of space, right? Um, because now you've got something that may be talking about the cosmos and I'm showing my vacuum cleaner ads to an audience that maybe has no interest. Um, you know, vacuum cleaner is a consumer product, so I suppose there could be worse examples. But uh, nevertheless, it just goes to show that, you know, contextual targeting when done well can actually be one of the best and most accurate forms of targeting. But it certainly has like its limitations. And so um, I do think um, for the good of everyone, it's it's healthy for us to go back and say, OK, like let's revisit contextual because I think both advertisers and publishers both, um, you know, have opportunities there that they each other can benefit from. And with an increased ad spend and digital contextual is a rather straightforward interaction that I think has a lower incidence for waste and fraud and um, accuracy and things like that. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of contextual, you know, being a portion of where the industry as a whole heads, but uh, I don't think that it's, you know, we've got something on our hands here that is like a solution to anything by any means. Do you predict moving forward that, you know, smaller mid-sized publishers are just going to have to to keep up with these large media corporations building their own products? Do you think they'll just have to outsource technology to kind of keep up with that? Or do you think that in the industry, we're going to find some sort of standard for this? So I definitely don't agree with uh, the former, which is that um, that small and medium-sized publishers are going to have to do anything that large conglomerates are going to do. They're, in my opinion, in this space, when you look at how we will conduct targeting um, or advertising targeting in general, um, the large publishers and small publishers, meaning someone like Hearst and someone that runs like a small blog in their spare time, they're inconsequentially, man, I'm not getting that word very good, but uh, regardless, they those two publishers are not very far apart in reality in terms of their significance to uh, whatever is adopted as a standard moving forward. So um, what I mean by that is, you know, the largest publisher in the world is just, I mean, it's a raindrop in, in a storm compared to um, the reach that some of these platforms have and what they're able to dictate. And so I do think that um, things like the sandbox and um, some of these other types of uh, solutions that have been proposed um, offer some of that. Um, but, you know, recently we were working on a, uh, a video where we were kind of going through some of these different things and uh, we haven't released it yet. But in that, you know, I, I go through 10 of the different solutions that are sort of proposed and none of them are perfect. Um, I mean, the solution that we have now is not perfect. It's ripe with fraud. So I don't think it's like we're leaving something behind here that was like, oh, we're, we're going to sunset this great system that worked so great. Um, it's just what everyone's come to rely on. And so I think, you know, whenever change occurs, whether it's in, you know, the technology industry or something that's been around forever, like agriculture, you're going to see resistance to that. And uh, what I expect is that there will be multiple solutions proposed. Um, it will be whatever is sort of adopted by the largest platforms uh, where the advertisers know they're going to have to spend their dollars. That'll be largely what publishers need to find ways to 
um, integrate with so that they can sell their inventory through those mechanisms. And that'll be what we move forward with. I think contextual will be a piece of that. I think the other piece of it is probably something that is a marriage between some of the other solutions that have been out there. And it may even be broken apart. You may see Apple take a bigger uh, stake in what's going on in the world of ads moving forward. But I don't think that's all been defined yet. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. The next topic we have on deck is from the New York Times, and it's about how the Department of Justice is planning to file antitrust charges against Google in September. So the U.S. Department of Justice told lawyers involved in the antitrust inquiry to wrap up their work by the end of September. So most of the lawyers that are working on the investigation said that they opposed this deadline, um, while some said they won't even sign the complaint and others have just chosen to leave the case altogether. So um, although both the Republican and Democratic parties are in favor of pursuing an antitrust case against Google, some lawyers on the case are concerned that the inquiry deadline is being pushed forward so the Department of Justice can announce a case before the November election therefore giving the Trump administration credit for pursuing this. But the inquiry started in June. We told everybody that we were going to follow along and things are <laughs> developing pretty quickly, it sounds like. Yeah, so uh, I almost kind of segued into this uh, in the last topic, but I, I figured we'd get to it and I didn't want to steal your thunder. Um, and it's because of things like this that I think it's hard to predict You know, the future of what targeting will look like because um, this however this ends will have some kind of echoing ripple effect um, throughout the, the way that a lot of things operate moving forward. So um, I think it's really obvious now that there will be some type of antitrust hearings um, uh, in regards to Google. It looks like based on the case briefings from uh, their recent visit to Congress that they will largely focus on their search and ad business, which makes sense. That's where all the money comes from and and, and truly where um, they are very, very dominant. And it's part of the reason why someone like Apple has come along and said, in the name of privacy, we are going to um, basically break the way that Facebook and Google uh, sell and buy their ads. And um, it definitely uh, shifts the power in that dynamic to someone like Apple to some degree. Uh, but Apple has tried to get into the advertising business before, and it hasn't been overly successful for them and i don't know that that's directionally where they're going to head but with someone like google i look at this and i really have to ask the question of um number one uh do i think anything significant will happen in terms of outcomes and the answer is yes i do i do think that if they bring charges that something significant will happen whether it's meaningful or beneficial um, or depending on where you fall on the side of fence of these things, good or bad, uh, I think that is really up for debate. The political uh, climate in the U.S. certainly will probably dictate some degree of it um, in a way that's, I mean, unpredictable for me at least. Um, but I, I could see, I, I actually have a really hard time seeing a scenario in which Google is hurt by this, though, believe it or not. Um, if you look at Microsoft's antitrust hearings from um, you know, almost 20 years ago, maybe over 20 years ago, um, they their stock price continued to kind of roar through the antitrust hearings. And if you look at Microsoft here today, um, they're stronger, better um, than they've ever been. 
And I actually wonder that if the legislation did a good job of actually kind of breaking apart what is being um, alleged is a monopoly or antitrust violation, um, if it wouldn't actually be good for Google because it would make them uh, more competitive, make their product stronger because they actually do have to um, design them to compete a little bit um, or design them better, give people more of what they want. And so I actually think it could be good in that respect. It could be bad if, and we've talked about this before, regulators are often not very forward thinking or, um, I mean, we can look no further than Australia, which we talked about last week when I had Sarah or Whitney on the show. And we talked a little bit about how Facebook um, has dealt with Australia's recent legislation to, you know, basically charge Facebook um, to show people news and Facebook said, okay, cool. Well, we just won't allow Facebook to show news to anyone in Australia now. Your move, legislators and um, regulators. And so I, I see something similar maybe happening with Google here. Um, so it's it's very much up in the air right now. I don't think anyone has a great sense of where it'll go, but those are just kind of off the top of my head, the, the things that make sense to me. Um, what was your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that whatever ends up happening is going to be something that, you know, does major harm to Google. But at the same time, I do think that something significant can happen out of it. But your point about um, taking away news from people in Australia, and I think um, for a while, there was that incident with Google and French publishers, how they weren't going to show them in Google search and things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, these platforms definitely have the power to kind of work around these different things and kind of almost make it feel like whatever efforts are being put in are kind of backfiring. So we will continue to kind of follow along with this as things progress. But another one of those things where we just have to wait and see. I think there's a lot left to be defined here. But um, it's something that I think everybody should be following along with. It's not something you can just push to the back burner, burner and say, I'll pay attention when this is all said and done with, because I do think that there are strategies that you'll want to get a head start on uh, as a publisher as, as this thing plays out. Right. Uh, the next topic we have on deck is from Media Post, and it's a study about native ads. Um, so it's widely known that most people think advertising is interruptive and sometimes annoying, but a new study finds that consumers are increasingly willing to give brands permission to engage with them um, through native advertising. So BuzzFeed and Omnicon Media Group teamed up together on a study to explore how to best define native advertising and lessen the confusion among consumers and advertisers. Um, and they've also incorporated eye tracking tests across desktop and mobile. So through eye tracking, the study was able to establish that there are dead zones, which are areas that consumers avoid because they have been conditioned to expect ads there. So nearly 70% of ads are viewed in content zones versus just 31% of ads in dead zones. So the study highlighted that even if ads are loaded and viewed, only 37% of them are cognitively processed, but with native 
um, when content is advertising and advertising is content, you get twice as much cognitive impressions. So in addition, 60% of the people surveyed said that they strongly agree on a five-point scale that native ads are more entertaining compared to other forms of digital advertising. Um, and eight in 10 consumers appreciate that they aren't forced to view native ads. So I thought that was interesting. We've definitely covered native ads a lot in the past. So, yeah, I have mixed feelings about this because, number one, I don't believe any of that research. Um, <laughs> I So, I mean, I think this is just um, um, the nature of our current um, our current environment where anytime I hear about a research study or the research itself, I immediately, like, go to it and I want to find out how it was conducted and what you know, like who funded and things like that. And this one has like all the red flags in terms of like, I'm very eye rolly about the, uh, about some of the methodology and what they're using is like confirmation of these things like the, like the eye tracking stuff. I mean, that is, I think that's a pretty bogus method of, um, of trying to understand like a user's attention or behavior or something like that. I, the, the theory of, I guess it's not a theory, it's because it's confirmed in many instances of ad blindness, people not paying attention to certain things because they they know their ads. Um, I think a good ad can still stand out to people sometimes, but it has to be unique or there has to be something particularly enticing or um, relevant to that person. But that being said, I, I mean, I'm not going to be one of these pound on the drum advertising types that's always talking about like, we need to reinvent and rethink advertising. Um, I mean, I think that that's a given, but it's getting everyone on that page and, you know, trying to reinvent a, a market that's one of the most, um, you know, robust and uh, highly profitable markets in the world, I think, is a pipe dream. So that being said, uh, native ads are, I mean, the traditional kind of like, um, you know, also on the web types of ads are garbage. I mean, they're just they're they're like the lowest common denominator they're tricky they're deceiving um but that being said there is a application for them uh like there is with any type of ad format and um there's certainly some that are less egregious than others in terms of their intrusiveness and also their um authenticity uh but i've seen here recently kind of the rise again of many of the very what I would consider bottom of the barrel, you'll never believe what she did next types of native ads on like major publisher sites. And I'm not sure what that is the result of. Um, my guess is it's, I've seen publishers complaining about, or not complaining, but saying that they've been offered two year, you know, guaranteed contracts from some native ad providers and stuff. And I mean, it is like deja vu from four years ago and two, you know, two years after many of those publishers signed those contracts they were like you know swearing off of native ads forever and now we're back into the situation we were in a couple years ago so memory is short i think with these things um but native ads i'm not a huge fan of but that being said i have them on many sites that i own and operate because i know that there's a time and a place that they work effectively and they're not you know intrusive or egregious right it is kind of funny how history does have a tendency to repeat itself. I think in a lot of cases in publishing, uh, I think it comes back to making safe decisions. And it's one of the biggest reasons why I'm such a, a fan of uh, independent publishers and independent publishing, because I think that's where you see the innovation. 
Um, you know, I think when you look at the, if we were to single out the top thousand, you know, publishers in the, let's just say in the world, um, many of them are owned by the, or many of those properties are probably owned by the same conglomerates. And many of the people that are making decisions or, um, you know, leading the charge there are, you know, it's the old IBM adage. If you're going to buy computers for a major company, go with IBM because no one ever lost their job, you know, buying IBM computers or something. It's an old sales thing they used to say. But um, I find it very, very um, boring, this idea of just exploring these kind of like very dead end um, types of um uh i guess innovation it's not even innovative but yeah just these formats and things like that just revisiting these things and acting like you know if we put a different face on it you know time has fixed all the problems and it's um yeah i think it ends up with a type of redundancy that independent publishers have the luxury to be able to ignore right um, the last topic on deck is kind of just an update, um, and it's about WebCore Vitals, and this is from Search Engine Roundtable, and I don't know how to pronounce this last name, Gary Isle? I, oh, yeah, yeah, I think it's Illis, but Illis? I'm not 100% sure. I know exactly what you're talking about from Google's webmaster team. Yes, so he said on Reddit that he thinks it's unlikely that core web vitals would ever become a primary ranking factor for organic traffic. And he said you shouldn't ignore it, but Google and other search engines rank primarily based on the highest quality and most relevant results for users' queries, not necessarily what the core web vitals are going to be like. Um, and I just bring this up because I know in, in past Q&As and different interactions we've had with publishers, a lot of them have asked about Core Web Vitals and, and where that's going and uh, what we're doing about it. But kind of nice to hear it from, what, what's the saying here, from the horse's mouth? I mean, I, I don't have anything to add because I just can't agree m more. And I'm so happy that that um, Gary is kind of like, uh, he he's um he's like a little bit better at times and i think it's from being at google so long and dealing with like the search rumors and you know when you know how something really works i think you can kind of relate to this and different things that you've probably worked on when you when you see somebody's come up with this theory about the way that something works and you actually work on that thing and you're like that's not at all how it works you know um but then not being able to really explain it to somebody um you know you get these sorts of things and i think gary's been around long enough um, that he will sort of shoot these things down in this way every now and then. And this is this one is is much needed. I can't think of something in this space that's that's consumed more time and energy for no benefit. I've yet to see any compelling evidence that any major improvements in core web vinyls offer any benefit to a publisher, much less pretty much any site. I mean, he says it right up front, like you know, the speed, the core web vitals of a page have very little to do, if anything at all, with the relevancy of the content matching the query of the user. And so, I mean, that has kind of been the drum that I've been pounding on for forever that, you know, I've I've had people like kind of like balk at me saying like, it's probably not a top 20 ranking factor, maybe not even top 50. And people are like, oh, well, they, you know, speed. But realistically, it's like a blank page is really fast. It's the fastest page there is. And yet, you know, it ranks number one for zero queries. You know what I mean? And so 
this is something that I think was badly needed. And I hope that many people will pay attention to it. All right. That's all the topics we've got going on this week. I have nothing else to add. Um, We've certainly expanded uh, the platforms that this podcast is on. And so if you are listening, um, whether you're a new listener, uh, an old listener, in terms of how long you've been listening to our podcast, um, we would welcome any reviews that you can write for the respective platforms. Any efforts that you would make to share this podcast would be greatly appreciated because we're continuing to invest time and resources in trying to make it as excellent as possible for all of you. We'd like to bring back uh, a video portion of the podcast. If that's something you would enjoy, uh, let us know. Uh, Publisherlabpodcast.com. You can send us messages, give us notes, anything that you would like, uh, and keep track of all our previous episodes there. And we want to thank you for joining us on another episode of the Publisher Lab.